This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Hello, my name is Robert Tasker. I'm the Chair of Neurocritical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and a Professor of Neurology and Anesthesia at Harvard Medical School. Today in our Open Pediatrics World Shared Practice Forum, I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Benjamin Wolf, who'll be talking about the treatment of hydrocephalus in infants, giving us a summary of his recent presentation at the World Congress of Intracranial Pressure this summer. Dr. Wolf is the Director of Neonatal and Congenital Anomaly Neurosurgery at Boston Children's Hospital. He is committed to global pediatric neurosurgery. Between 2000 and 2006, he worked in Uganda with Cure International and founded the first pediatric neurosurgical facility in sub-Saharan Africa. During that period, he developed a novel treatment for hydrocephalus in infants that combined endoscopic third ventriculostomy with choroid plexus cauterization, which avoids the risk and expense of shunt dependency in the majority. He is still director of research there, and his group has trained neurosurgeons from the USA and more than 20 other countries around the world and tens of thousands of children with hydrocephalus in the developing world have been treated. In 2012, Dr. Wolf was honored with the MacArthur Genius Grant for improving access to care and standards of that care in the United States and in the developing world. It's a great pleasure to welcome him to our global community of pediatric critical care physicians. Welcome. It's a pleasure to be here, Robert. Thank you for asking me. Um, as you said, my family and I moved to Uganda in 2000 to work with Cure International to start uh, a pediatric neurosurgery hospital there. And one of the things that uh, really struck us from the very beginning of opening the hospital was the enormous volume of infants with hydrocephalus that were coming for treatment. Currently, out of the 1,200 or so uh, pediatric neurosurgery operations that are done per year there, 800 of them or more are um, babies with, with uh, the new onset of hydrocephalus. It would probably be a good idea to just briefly summarize what hydrocephalus is for the general audience. So hydrocephalus is a condition in which there's an abnormal accumulation of CSF, cerebrospinal fluid, in the ventricles of the brain. This leads to increasing pressure and in babies with compliant skulls, the heads grow too fast and become very large. If it's untreated, this uh, causes damage to the brain. Uh, there can be developmental delay, blindness, spasticity, uh, pain, and a good deal of suffering, poor feeding, vomiting. And many of these children will die. Uh, in the days before we were able to treat hydrocephalus, about half of children untreated had died by the age of two. Hydrocephalus is more than a single disease. It's a condition caused by a number of different uh, um, things. And it's very common. Uh, it's um, been estimated that in sub-Saharan Africa alone, uh, there may be between 100 and 200,000 new cases in infants every year. 
as I said, hydrocephalus is caused by a number of different things. There are two um, basic categories of hydrocephalus that you can see in the uh, table here. There are uh, hydrocephalus cases uh, in which there was no hydrocephalus at birth, but something happened to cause the hydrocephalus. We'll call that acquired hydrocephalus. This can occur from uh, infections such as meningitis. It can occur from a hemorrhage in the brain. Uh, it can occur from a brain tumor blocking the normal CSF pathways. And then there uh, are congenital causes of hydrocephalus, among the more common ones being aqueductal stenosis, which is a narrowing or uh, complete occlusion of the narrow passageway between the third ventricle and the fourth ventricle. And another very common cause of hydrocephalus is that which is uh, associated with neural tube defects, spina bifida, myelomeningocele. For a long time now, our general underst understanding of CSF physiology and what causes hydrocephalus uh, has been heavily influenced by work in the early 20th century. Uh, and this is referred to as the classical bulk flow model of, uh, of CSF physiology. And you can see in this uh, uh, drawing here, the CSF in this model is created by the choroid plexus, the vascular tissue in the ventricles. It circulates from inside the ventricles down the narrow uh, aqueduct into the fourth ventricle and then out the fourth ventricle into the subarachnoid spaces around the brain. And then that fluid is reabsorbed back into the uh, vascular system uh, through these special uh, projections into the dural venous sinuses called arachnoid granulations. And it's sort of an idea that it, it's like a river. It's flowing from point A to point B and if something interrupts the river uh, at any point, whether it's an obstruction at the aqueduct or inadequate absorption of the fluid in the venous sinuses, that that's the cause of hydrocephalus. There has been an accumulation of evidence over the last decade or two that has challenged that model and has really made us less certain about our understanding about hydrocephalus. And one of these uh, is called the hydrodynamic model. And I'm not going to get into any detail about this except to say that <clears throat> with every heartbeat there are pulsations uh, with, of, of, with the blood pressure that, that go into the uh, intracranial space. And there are ways for those pulsations to be damped so as to protect the brain in this model. The blood vessels that are at the base of the brain in the subarachnoid spaces have some of their pulsations damped and absorbed by the subarachnoid spaces outside the brain. Uh, the venous compliance system uh, in the brain absorbs some of those pulsations. And finally, the, uh, the systolic pulse waves go into the choroid plexus inside the ventricles, leading to uh, a pulsation uh, inside the ventricles of the brain. And anything that interferes with the normal absorption of those pulsations in this model uh, can uh, uh, cause hydrocephalus. We'll get back to that in, in, in a few minutes. So in Uganda, we had uh, sort of four important questions that we needed to uh, address. One was, what was causing all this hydrocephalus? Because we just didn't see this volume of cases in North America. And then in this context, what was the best way to treat it? Um, how could we treat it earlier? We were seeing many of these children too late in the process with these big heads and, and, uh, and, and uh, a lot of brain damage already having happened. And then finally, uh, how could we increase the access to care uh, uh, for these children? That picture there shows um, uh, 
not an uncommon uh, uh, child that showed up in our in our clinic with a very large head. You can see the severe uh, sun setting of the eyes with the, the iris and the pupil basically buried below the lower lid so you only see the whites of the eyes. And um, seeing these kinds of cases was quite common when we first opened the hospital. So why was it so common? Um, in 2005, we reported on our first 1,000 cases and we showed that uh, about 60% of these uh, cases of infant hydrocephalus were caused from infection. We knew that because there was pus in the ventricles, uh, there was destruction of brain tissue. You see a rather severe case there in the CT scan um, uh, in, in the slide. Another thing that we found was that the infections causing these, uh, uh, the subsequent hydrocephalus seemed to cycle with the rainfall pattern. Uh, they were occurring between the peak and trough levels of, rain, of rainfall, uh, which happened twice a year uh, in Uganda. And we tracked this over a number of years, and it was a pattern that was just like clockwork. So we're still in the process um, of trying to sort out what the most common organisms are so that it could be prevented with uh, early treatment of the infection or prevention of the infection. Um, in our uh, center in Uganda and in another center from other colleagues in Kenya, uh, we have found in both places that three-quarters of all the cases of infant hydrocephalus are caused by neonatal infection and neural tube defects, spina bifida. And that means both of those things could be largely prevented by uh, reducing the incidence of neonatal sepsis and neonatal ventriculitis in the brain and uh, with the uh, introduction of uh, folic acid. Um, and um, so prevention is a very important part of this story. Um, much better to prevent hydrocephalus as well as the brain damage that happens from the infections than to treat it later on. I wonder if I could turn now to our audience and pose three questions. Do you see acute hydrocephalus in your institution? If you do, what are the most common causes? And thirdly, do you use ETV, CPC uh, as a procedure in your center? The next question was, in this context of rural sub-Saharan Africa, what was the best way to treat hydrocephalus in these children? There's a history going back of more than 100 years uh, for treating hydrocephalus. Um, in the uh, early 20th century, the 1920s to the 1940s, um, people, uh, neurosurgeons, particularly Walter Dandy, um, looking at uh, hydrocephalus from the point of view of this bulk flow model, thought that there were two reasonable, rational approaches to treating hydrocephalus. One was if there's an obstruction to the outflow of the CSF getting out of the brain, particularly if there were obstruction at the level of the aqueduct, which is a common cause of hydrocephalus, one could treat it by bypassing that obstruction. And so uh, there was an operation that uh, uh, was uh, invented by him and, and carried out by uh, several people in those early days, doing a craniotomy, lifting up the frontal lobe of the brain, cutting the optic nerve, and going underneath here to make a hole in the front wall of the third ventricle, 
that's called the lamina terminalis, and a modification of that was to go on through there and also make a hole into the floor of the third ventricle. And they called this a third ventriculostomy, which allowed the fluid to escape from the third ventricle into the spinal uh, fluid spaces on the outside of the brain, which would bypass the obstruction. Another uh, logical uh, treatment was to reduce the production of CSF. It was thought that all CSF was made by the choroid plexus, which turns out probably isn't true. And um, there were attempts made at putting in a large rigid endoscope that the urologists were using in those days um, uh, to cauterize the choroid plexus um, in these children's ventricles through two openings in the back of the head. This actually worked in a fair number of cases. The problem was that the operative mortality is quite high, um, partly because of anesthesia and also uh, surgical techniques uh, uh, at the time. And so um, having a 10 to 25% operative mortality is not very good. In the 1940s to the 1960s, attention turned toward another idea, which was to shunt the fluid from inside the ventricles of the brain to another body cavity somewhere else where the fluid could be absorbed. And all sorts of body cavities were tried. Uh, the salivary gland duct, the gallbladder, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the, the ureter, um, and uh, these had their problems. Um, finally, in uh, the early 1960s, actually late 1950s, when Dow Corning invented um, Silastic or silicon, there was a material that, could, that was relatively inert to the body and it was found that you could put a length of this tubing into the peritoneal cavity, which was a very easy cavity to get into, and successfully have the fluid drain from the brain to the abdominal cavity. And that really has been the main way for treating hydrocephalus in babies for the last 50 plus years. But there's a problem with shunts, especially in the context of a developing country. First of all, the ones we use here are very expensive. They cost thousands of dollars, quite frankly. There's not an insignificant infection risk because you're implanting a foreign body, and they all fail. Um, uh, 40 to 50 percent of them will have failed within two years of placement. Uh, 80 to 90 percent of them will have failed within 10 years at least once. And the average child has two or three shunt malfunctions that require an operation to fix the shunt over the course of their uh, life. The problem with that uh, is that here in a developed country, uh, we're fortunate to have an emergency medical system and to have easy access to neurosurgical care. And we fix these shunt uh, malfunctions as emergencies in the middle of the night as needed. Because once the skull becomes uh, rigid, uh, and can no longer expand, in a child who's dependent on a shunt, the pressure can rise quickly uh, and they can become dangerously ill and die uh, if the shunt isn't uh, fixed right away. Now, that's a real problem if you're placing these devices into babies and sending them off to a rural uh, sub-Saharan Africa, northern Uganda in our case, or western Uganda, southern Sudan. Uh, those children are almost guaranteed uh, to pass away from a shunt malfunction in the years to come. And so you're, in a, sen in a sense, uh, creating a new diagnosis of shunt dependence. In terms of the expense part of it, we have shown in a couple of studies that one can use a very inexpensive shunt uh, 
in this case one that cost about $35, and have equivalent outcomes to more expensive uh, mainstream shunts that we use in North America. But that doesn't change the situation. In the 1970s, um, 1978 to be uh, exact, there was a report of doing a, an endoscopic third ventriculostomy, going back to the old idea, but now doing it in a minimally invasive way, where an endoscope is placed through the corner of the baby's fontanelle uh, into the third ventricle and look in there and make the opening uh, endoscopically without doing an open uh, operation. But this didn't really catch on for quite some time, uh, and it wasn't until the mid-1990s, really, that people started looking at this in a serious way. In 2000, in our hospital in Uganda, we were donated an endoscope, and we were able to have the option of attempting endoscopic third ventriculostomy. And we found what others have subsequently found, and that is that um, it's a good, safe operation, but for young infants, it often fails. Um, the bar graphs there show that uh, for children under a year of age, we had less than a 50% success rate. It's even less than that when you get down to children under the age of, of six months. The string of pictures there, you can see um, uh, in, on the far left, there uh, is a picture of the floor of the third ventricle. Uh, you can see the pituitary gland just to the left, extreme left, and you can see the top of the basilar artery just to the extreme right. And then in the, in the sequential three pictures, you see a one millimeter wire coming down, making an opening that penetrates the floor of the third ventricle, widening that opening, and then putting the endoscope through into this prepontine cistern in front of the brainstem. And in that final picture there, you see the basilar artery, uh, which sits in front of the brainstem. It's really too bad. Uh, that ETV didn't work better for infants because there was a huge advantage to it. The pattern of failure for ETV uh, is quite different than the pattern of failure for shunts. Uh, in this work by a colleague of mine, uh, Ab Kolkarni in Toronto, they showed that uh, by three months, uh, the risk of shunt failure exceeds the risk of ETV failure. And nearly all ETV failures will have occurred by six months of age whereas shunts don't fail quite so uh, quickly, but they continue to fail over time. Um, when you're treating hydrocephalus in infants, the failure from an ETV will occur in what I call the safe zone because the head is expandable, uh, treatment failure is gradual, the mother sees the head growing again, and there's time to get back to the facility uh, to, to treat the baby uh, again. Whereas once you get past about a year of age, you get into a zone where treatment failure from a shunt is going to become a life-threatening condition. And by then, if an ETV has been working, it's, not, it's uh, very unlikely to fail later on in life. So we were very keen to find a way to make ETV more successful for infants. We took this uh, really largely abandoned historical treatment of choroid plexus cauterization and combined that with ETV in the babies. The choroid plexus was sitting right there. We were, it was a very easy matter to cauterize this. And no one had ever tried combining the two techniques. And what we found was that for infants under a year of age, if we added plexus cauterization to the endoscopic third ventriculostomy, the ETV, that there was a statistically significant improvement in the success rate overall going from less than 50 to about 65%. And when you look at individual causes of hydrocephalus, uh, there was even greater improvement in a couple of subsets. 
on the left there are the post-infectious hydrocephalus uh, group. On the right are the myelomeningocele group. That's what MM stands for there. And for children with spina bifida and hydrocephalus, our success rate more than doubled uh, when we added choroid plexus cauterization. For post-infectious hydrocephalus, we learned and subsequently reported that about two out of three of those children will have a, an unscarred prepontine cistern, but in about a third of them, there's enough of a meningitis component that that CSF space is scarred. And so when that's very scarred, the failure rate is substantially uh, increased. And so we've learned that when we see that at the time of ETV, those children um, probably should just go ahead and be shunted under the same anesthesia. Um, in the middle column there are other uh, non-infectious causes of hydrocephalus, um, such as aqueduct stenosis, Dandy Walker malformation, and we have shown significant uh, increase in the success rate of ETV in these uh, etiologies. Here's an example of uh, aqueduct stenosis. You can see the endoscopic picture there on the right of the closed aqueduct that's obstructed. Um, and in the treatment survival curves there on the left, for ETV alone, there was about a 50% success rate, and for the combined procedure, the success rate was about 80%. We're even able to treat so-called communicating hydrocephalus with this technique, um, ETV alone with about a 20% success rate, and the combined technique giving us a, about a 2 out of 3 success rate for children with non-obstructive uh, hydrocephalus. So, this led to the question of what is CPC doing? How is it enhancing the success of ETV for infants? I think there are two ways to think about this, and they, most, they may both be right. Uh, from the bulk flow model concept that I alluded to uh, before, ETV may bypass an obstruction and allow the fluid to escape the ventricles when it was trapped before. We know that newborn humans don't have well-developed arachnoid granulations, uh, which are the little things in the veins that absorb the fluid back into the bloodstream, and it may be that babies just aren't as readily able to absorb the fluid once it gets out of the brain. So CPC might reduce the CSF production in a way that brings that into balance and increases the number of infants that will be successful with an ETV. In the hydrodynamic model, uh, ETV makes a new opening from the ventricles and adds an absorber of the pulsations that are in the ventricles. And we know that babies have a more compliant brain with the ventricles more easily expanded. The, if the ETV is acting as an absorber of those pulsations which are driving the expansion of the ventricles, CPC may actually reduce the driver of those pulsations uh, by reducing the amplitude of pulsations in the ventricles. However it works, uh, it does work, and we were able to avoid shunt dependence in about two out of three uh, children coming to us uh, for treatment. We've since brought this treatment to North America, and uh, in our own experience here at Children's Hospital, you can see over the last 10 years how the red line there, which is shunts placed for uh, hydrocephalus in infants, has steadily come down, whereas uh, treating it endoscopically has steadily gone up, up. and we've, we've reduced our rate of putting shunts in babies here uh, by more than half. Because of the large volume of patients that we have treated in Uganda over the years, and there have been thousands now, we've been able to answer some basic questions. First of all, is this a safe operation? 
Um, we've shown that the infection rate is less than 1%, even in Uganda. Um, the operative mortality is less than 1%, and that's death by any cause uh, within 30 days of surgery. We wondered, since we were doing this endoscopic treatment up front in all these babies as the primary treatment, was there a downside to this if they wound up needing a shunt later? Was there any increase in the infection rate? Was there an increase in the subsequent uh, shunt failure rate? So we looked at that in a, in a, um, a cohort of 900 patients and found that uh, actually it, it didn't hurt the shunt um, uh, um, survival at all. In fact, there was some hint that if you had had previous endoscopic treatment, you may have a better chance of not having a shunt malfunction. So that alleviated that concern. For children that initially are doing well with the treatment and then fail, we found that if the failure occurred uh, at three months or later, basically between three and six months, we had a very high rate of just successfully reopening the ETV because failure in those kids was usually because of closure or scarring over of the ETV and that would stay open when we reopened it most of the time. The early failures in the children where it just wasn't working from the beginning tended to need a shunt. But reopening a closed ETV can yet avoid a shunt even for those that are classified as failures. However, uh, there was one nagging question uh, which uh, bothered me for quite some time, and that was this. It's the observation that when you put shunts in children, in babies with big ventricles, that their ventricles get substantially smaller than when you treat them endoscopically with ETV CPC. In fact, with shunt drainage, sometimes there's even an over-drainage phenomenon and the ventricles become smaller than normal, which has its own set of problems. But what bothered me and has bothered other people was the question, if the ventricles are made smaller by the shunt, is there any advantage to the young developing brain that's growing very uh, actively in having more drainage and smaller ventricles um, over and above having been treated endoscopically successfully but still having larger than normal ventricles? We first looked at this retrospectively uh, in our spina bifida patients. And we found no difference when we looked at um, developmental assessments using the Bailey scales of infant development uh, for those children that had been treated by shunt versus those children that had been treated by ETV CPC. In fact, the trend was for those who had not been shunted to do a bit better, uh, but it wasn't statistically significant. But that was reassuring that we weren't impeding brain growth by not placing a shunt. Um, my uh, colleagues, uh, uh, Dr. Stephen Schiff at uh, um, Penn State University and uh, Dr. Kolkarni at University of Toronto collaborated with me to look uh, at this same cohort of spina bifida patients and looking at the brain and fluid volumes based on pre and post-operative CT scans. And we found that the thing that correlated much better with developmental outcome was not how much fluid space there was, but how much brain there was. Kind of stands to reason. If you grow more brain, you're going to do better. So brain volume correlated with developmental outcome, but brain volume did not correlate with the type of treatment. And so this gave us the, um, the foundation upon which to do a randomized prospective trial, which is now uh, um, still ongoing but we have uh, our one-year preliminary results, and the, the trial is this. 
Uh, it's an NIH-funded trial uh, entitled Neurocognitive Outcomes and Changes in Brain and CSF Volume After Treatment of Post-Infectious Hydrocephalus in Ugandan Infants by Shunting versus ETVCPC. Now, in choosing these children under six months of age with post-infectious hydrocephalus, we're actually selecting a group that tends not to do as well with endoscopic treatment. Uh, we would have been we would look much better <laughs> to do this with the spina bifida population, but we wanted to pick the group that was the single biggest population of, of patients. The trial uh, looks something like this. Uh, children can be included if they are less than six months of age, if they meet a rather elaborate uh, algorithm uh, uh, of criteria that uh, uh, determines post-infectious hydrocephalus as the diagnosis. Mom has to be at least 18 years of age to consent. And we are only studying patients in the colored districts there in southeastern Uganda that are in the same region as our hospital. That's mainly not only for follow-up, but also uh, so that children that have a shunt failure have access to us. And we had shown in previous studies that there was no difference in five-year survival between those two treatment modalities for children coming from those districts. The patients are randomized to intention to treat by VP shunt or by ETV-CPC. And the primary outcome measures the Bailey scale of infant development, uh, cognitive subtest with secondary outcome measures in those subscores, as well as age-normed brain and CSF volumes, morbidity, mortality, and treatment failure. Each child must be a candidate for either procedure. That child would not be randomized to this study because there's such anatomic distortion of the brain from the original infection that it's unlikely that an ETV would be technically feasible. But on the other hand, if you want to shunt that child, you can't just stick a shunt in there. You need to use endoscopic guidance to uh, make the different fluid spaces communicate with one another. So that would not be a candidate. The next CT scan there shows a patient who could be easily treated by either method. And then if we do look in and do the ETV, come through the floor of the third ventricle and see a scarred cistern instead of a nice clean basilar artery, that patient crosses over to the shunt treatment group because the uh, chances of failure are so high. Uh, we have, we have uh, recruited uh, our, and randomized uh, our 100 patients. Um, the blue and green squares there in the, in the flow chart uh, simply indicate the, the crossovers uh, for treatment because of the scar in the prepontine cistern. There have been uh, no operative mortalities, no d deaths by any cause within 30 days of surgery, but there have been 10 deaths, and consistent with our prior experience, most of those deaths have been completely unrelated to hydrocephalus or neurosurgical issues. Um, you can see the list there, malnutrition, acute gastroenteritis, um, pneumonia, measles, a couple of more malnutrition. There were two children that died late that, uh, from causes that may have been related to treatment. One died from a shunt infection and one died for failing to return uh, when the ETV uh, treatment had failed. We don't know why they didn't come back. We found that out retrospectively. They had died at about eight months uh, postoperatively. Here are the treatment survival curves, and it is as predicted. Uh, the blue curve above there shows the one-year uh, uh, treatment survival for the shunted group. The red line shows the one-year treatment survival for the ETV-CPC group, and you can see that 
all of the ETV CPC failures really occurred by three months in that safe zone I was talking about so that it's not an emergency when it fails. The shunt failures continue on at a steady rate and we assume that with another 12 months of follow-up there will be additional shunt failures. Uh, there's no sig significant difference at one year of age um, in regard to uh, treatment failure rate. When we looked at the brain and CSF volumes in these children at six months, we saw that, uh, and it's the same for the intention to treat as, and, as well as the as-treated group, but I just have circled the as-treated results there. So children that were treated with a shunt had a 60% decrease in the amount of CSF in their head whereas those treated endoscopically had virtually no change overall. In fact, uh, on average, a little bit of an increase with overall head growth. In the lower row there, we're looking at brain volume, and there was absolutely no difference in the increase in brain volume uh, between the two treatment groups. In other words, uh, if you had a shunt and your ventricles got smaller, you didn't grow any more brain than if you were treated by ETV-CPC. And there's no difference in the developmental scores at 12 months, except for one category circled there in the intention to treat group, uh, which shows uh, that the ETV group scored higher uh, in the gross motor uh, sub subgroup. So the conclusions to date in regard to this new way of treating infant hydrocephalus are that uh, there's no difference in survival at one year. There's no difference in brain growth. Shunts do decrease the ventricles more. There's no difference in developmental outcome at one year. And uh, there's no difference in failure rate at one year. And we're continuing this uh, follow-up for an additional year, so we'll have final two-year uh, outcomes. The next question was, how can we treat it earlier? Because uh, when we first opened the hospital in Uganda, we were seeing children that were quite badly off, and some of the care we did was, frankly, palliative. You need to treat this soon enough uh, to uh, avoid permanent brain damage. We engaged in public education activities through radio and uh, uh, video and newspapers. And what we were able to uh, see over the course of 10 years was that the number of infants coming for treatment doubled and the age and the head circumference at presentation uh, continued to reduce over time. So now the majority of children coming us to, for, to us for treatment are under six months of age, many of them under three months of age, and that makes for a better outcome. And then finally, how do we increase access to treatment? Um, because this is a huge burden of disease. Um, in a broad swath of the developed, developing world, and many of these kids don't have access to any treatment. So one of the things we began doing a number of years ago was to bring neurosurgeons from uh, other developing countries to our little place there in Uganda to train them. It's a good place to train because we do so many cases. Um, we do 15 to 20 of these a week, and we uh, have a funded three-month fellowship where we bring the neurosurgeon to our place with a, uh, and support them there. We provide uh, equipment and uh, maintenance on the equipment to their home institution when they get back. We have them plugged into the International Federation for Spina Bifida and Hydrocephalus to have provision of shunts for poor patients that can't afford uh, to pay for them. We hire a local clinical coordinator, CURE does, to help with uh, patient follow-up because that's very important. 
and we, uh, we have a clinical database. And since 2001, we've uh, treated more than 18,000 children for hydrocephalus. We've trained 27 surgeons in, in 18 countries. And uh, if anyone is interested uh, in this program, uh, of uh, neurosurgeon training, um, there's the website uh, to go to to, uh, uh, to inquire about that. In a little bit of an ironic twist, we have been uh, having North American pediatric neurosurgeons going to Uganda to be trained my, by my Ugandan neurosurgery colleagues there in doing this technique. And specifically, the Hydrocephalus Clinical Research Network in North America um, has sent um, about 10 neurosurgeons there for training and they have now brought the technique back to their institutions in North America and they are now doing a prospective multi-center study uh, of, uh, of this uh, procedure which is entirely appropriate because uh, people that don't have my own history and biases need to uh, be evaluating this and so I, I helped teach them how to do it and now I'm standing back to let them do their, to let them do their work. Um, there are a few people that I should thank, um, not least of which is my family, uh, my wife and six children who lived uh, in Uganda with me for about six and a half years. We have many donors that support the work. Uh, most of the children that we treat in Uganda are um, financially very badly off and uh, receive their care either free or heavily subsidized. Uh, Cure International, my co-investigators, um, especially Stephen Schiff and uh, Ab Kulkarni, uh, the NIH and the Fogarty Institute, USAID, and uh, the MacArthur Foundation. And uh, I thank you for this opportunity. Thank you, Ben. That's been really fascinating, seeing the history. And of, of course, I heard it in the summer. And it's been a real pleasure to hear it again and think about it again. Thank you very much. Thank you. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.